It's a world of shocks and risks for global supply chains. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Risk has always been with us, but it's especially high at the moment. A major reason is a rise in global protectionism, spurred by a backlash against free trade and globalization. The trend is having a serious impact on economies worldwide, and that means big potential problems for supply chains. There's a new report from the Atlantic Council and Zurich Insurance Group that examines the state of supply chain risk, zeroing in on three areas, protectionism, Mideast tensions and their effect on energy supplies and prices, and the availability of water and food. Today I'm speaking with Nick Wildgoose, global supply chain product leader with Zurich, who will explain the findings of the study and tell us what global companies should be doing to protect themselves against these critical sources of risk. We'll also hear of another Zurich report on business resilience, which contains some disturbing findings about the high probability of disruptions in global supply chains. So here is my conversation with Nick Wildgoose. Nick Wildgoose, welcome to the show. Hi, Bob. Yes. Nice to be on the show. Thank you very much. I want to talk about this new report from Zurich and the Atlantic Council. Could you describe to me what that report is all about, how it was conducted, what type of uh, companies or people that it surveyed? The report outcome is looking at three significant scenarios for the world, and unfortunately very real scenarios that companies face today. And they are around protectionism, and the worries around protectionism coming from a number of geographies around the world and the implications that might have for economic growth and the risks around that. The energy crisis, potential scenario. As we know, unfortunately, there's a, a significant amount of conflict in the Middle East, which is a major energy producer, somewhat less than it used to be, but still a major energy producer. And then I think something that's uh, forgotten to a certain extent, unfortunately, is around the water and hence food scarcity issue, which unfortunately, whether we put that down to climate change or whatever is causing it, is certainly a drought, which, by the way, have an interconnected risk then into geopolitical concerns because water shortages in certain geographies around the world are in turn driving political issues which then caused the geopolitical tension. I want to touch on those one by one. But first of all, I just want to know, what was your source of information for this report? Who did you talk to or where did you draw the data from? The, the work was led for us by the Atlantic Council and the security there, and also Frederick F. Pardee, Centre for International Futures, working alongside Zurich individuals. And we were capturing, using a, an open source quantitative tool, there were three major areas of analysis that were used by them, which is some historical data analysis, where they took on 3,500 series of some base case analysis and some alternative scenario development. So we're integrating all of this across 
quite a mouthful here, as you can tell, 186 countries and 12 core systems. So a substantial amount of analysis and effort has gone into this work. has then been sense-checked, if you like, to see whether the results feeding into those major scenarios work. Okay, so let's take these points one by one, starting with the rise of protectionism. Do you, in fact, see or does the report reveal a widespread backlash against free trade? And what form is that taking? We certainly see some pushback, and you're seeing that in terms of societal disturbance in certain economies around the world. There's no secret that the a, a number of elections back in 2016 produce interesting results. Let's put it those terms in terms of Brexit, which one could argue partly reflects, depending on your view, a protectionist view or certainly a concern. Well, obviously, it's very early days for Brexit. But there is a kind of group in society that feel that globalization is missing them out. There's equally a strong group that think globalism actually has been a great success for the world and is actually generating profitability. And in our in our model, the, the globalism, as we call it, resurgent, appears to produce a much more positive picture, both for the economy as a whole, but also for groups as we class them in what we call a middle class, whether that's where they're earning $10 plus a day, or even for that particular group that benefits. And also you've got to look at the extreme poverty group and are they going to benefit? So overall it's a benefit, but it's a political challenge, much an economic challenge to see how that increased wealth is shared around the various socioeconomic groups. I wonder if there's a certain irony in the fact that we are an increasingly interconnected world, and yet that's becoming less reflected in our trade policies. Or or is in danger of reflecting that. Recently, we've seen, and the report talks about that, with a small downturn post the financial crisis, it's largely been in a growth path, and it's kind of stabilized. You know, if you look at 2015, 2016, it's back at kind of 2008 levels, roughly. It, it's interesting. I saw, um, as I say, there's big advocates, and maybe they've got reason to be big advocates, but some of the major, the head of one of the major global logistics companies was talking just the other day, so in early May 2017, and his belief that globalization was still going to move ahead. It made so much sense for the world, particularly when you look at certain value chains where protectionism just cannot work sometimes in the sense of, uh, when I say that, certain key raw materials are only available in certain parts of the world. So, you know, where are you going to get your titanium from or some of these re- certain rare earth metals, for example, are only available pretty much out of China. And there, some of those, for example, are required in mobile phone production. Rare earth metals. Um, yeah, exactly. Moving on to the question of the energy crisis resulting from conflict in the Middle East. Now, as we all know, there's certainly nothing new about conflict in the Middle East. What is new or what is distinctive about what's going on there right now that might pose a particular threat to global supply chains? I think it's just the heightened level of tension in the Middle East. I I mean, unfortunately, there isn't just one political crisis, one can argue, in the Middle East as a a series of instabilities within the Middle East in a number of different geographies, including between two of the the large oil producers, which are Saudi Arabia, Iran, and so on. So it's that combination of factors 
impacting on so many of the producers. I guess the good news for the world is we have moved on into renewables and this report looks at how accelerating the development of renewables can to a certain extent mitigate the energy crisis that could come out of a disastrous situation in the Middle East and clearly uh, as well the, I guess it's in, certainly is a good news story in terms of the US and the access now to more energy resources is also a good news thing although again we get into the interconnected risk don't we, of the climate change aspect, as I say, moving to renewables as quickly as we can in order to mitigate that. We're not quite there yet because you say rising oil prices would still have a big impact on transportation costs. And you say that you paint at least a worst case scenario in which 23 million more people are be, would be living in extreme poverty. That sounds like a pretty serious direct impact. Absolutely. And there's a link, I think it's particularly around the, the middle class as well. Uh, where you see the the negative number there of 93 million in a constrained energy environment. And the other aspect of the scenario we look at is the accelerated renewables piece, which can at least mitigate that to a degree. The other good news, well, good news, at least, you know, we'll come later in the call, I think, Bob, to contingency planning, but at least a number of the major global economies now have, if you like, learned from the 1970s and they have a largest reserves of oil, for example, etc., which to some extent mitigates the issue. But it still is a significant issue, not just for the Middle East, but for the whole world, the energy crisis. Let's talk about water and food scarcity, and let's start with water. You outlined the possibility of too little water, which is drought, too much water, which yep. is flooding. Uh, they are uh, twin risks. Talk about those two. Indeed, they are, yeah. From an arid earth point of view as we describe the impact of too little water in some key geographies around the world around the growing of food and we've seen i think it's been uh, somewhat overcome by quite a lot of rain recently or california has been challenged over the last few years your our audience in the u.s will realize but that impact on food production can feed through into geopolitical challenges and that in turn impacts certainly, as we say, on people in extreme poverty, but also particularly on the middle class groups, which are illustrated within the report from from the base case. Certainly in the case of too much water, we have seen in recent years the impact of severe flooding in Thailand. We've seen the tsunami in Japan, and so that becomes uh, just as much of a risk, does it not? As I described, the natural catastrophe risk, if you like, flooding is by far Although earthquakes might be seen as dramatic and they happen in certain areas and they're very damaging to those communities. But when you look at the economics and the damage that's caused flood, it is by far the largest cause of economic losses and in turn feeds through into insurance losses. And, and you're right, it brings out perfectly, for example, the Thailand flood, the interconnectedness of risk, for example, in a manufacturing environment whereby many companies experience for a, a while a 40% reduction in hard disk manufacturing as a result of the flood because you often get industrial clusters and that 40% reduction in production of hard disk impacted throughout, for example, the the PC marketplace at the time but impacted on suppliers of microchips because without hard disk you can produce the PC or the laptop or, or other device. So it, it had ramifications across the globe in terms of financial results. And, and I think it's seen uh, 
it was one of the turning points or tipping points, perhaps the right way to describe it, of a drive to better supply chain resilience. When it comes to the issue of food scarcity and food shortages, you link that directly to the issue of water supplies. Uh, drought, of course, leads to food scarcity. Uh, you say global water withdrawals forecast to increase by 14% above current levels. So um, that is the, you know, the main cause, as you, as, as you see it, of potential food shortages. Absolutely. And there's a, a, a neat link, I think, there, Bob, with the origins of the Syrian crisis. So linking it back into the Middle East and potentially an energy crisis. There was a drought in uh, the northern area of Syria that arguably contributed to the political instability in that country. And I'm afraid this uh, water shortage in certain key geographies is going to lead to other political tensions as we move forward. Now, all the things that we're talking about have a direct impact upon global supply chains. And in fact, there's another study that Zurich has conducted uh, in connection with the, uh, tell me if this is correct, the Business Continuity Institute, you call this BCI 2016, which outlines some of the things that are causing disruptions within supply chains around the world. What are some of those things, according to that report? Thank you for bringing that report up. I think the scary number, by the way, just to start off, is that 70% of the companies responding to that survey have talked about suffering significant supply chain disruption. The report goes into what those companies have deemed to be significant. And we, and we get over 500 corporates responding to that. We've been doing the report now for eight years, and the figure has consistently been above 70%. I would have been worried if it was above 20%. And I was, first time it came out, I was slightly astonished at the level. The peak, is you won't be surprised, Bob, given your knowledge on this area, was that you mentioned 2011, where it was 85%. But the, to answer your question on the causes, not only we've got geopolitical and acts of terrorism coming in, but at the top of the charts, if you like, is primary nowadays around cyber and IT issues around the supply chain. As you can appreciate, without the flow of information that goes alongside the goods or the services going across the global supply chain, then you, you don't have a working supply chain. In a massive warehouse today, without the IT system, there's no way you can pick the goods, for example. There's nobody, no human actually knows where they are. It's technology, it's skills, and transport network disruption is number four on the chart. That gives you an idea of the causes disruptions there. I think the other interesting aspect, those responsible for improving resilience within their organizations, is that it isn't always the direct supplier, which is typically where their resilience efforts are focused, but it can be the next tier down, the tier twos and threes in this interconnected world that actually cause the issue that mean you can't supply for your customer on time. So it also should make you reflect on how, for your critical suppliers, the most profitable product, you're assessing supply chain. When you talk about technology, are you talking about that it isn't sophisticated enough, that it's failing in some way, or that there are outright proactive attacks in the form of cyber terrorism and hacking? What is the cause for technological glitches? It's a combination. We actually break it down. So... Uh, one of the causes is an increasing number of cyber attacks, as we define it. So they've come up the chart, I'm afraid, uh, over the last eight years from like cause number 20 or something fairly low down to be number three. I'm sure that, by the way, there's some crossover with IT. But then the other aspect is just IT outages of some sort. So 
to illustrate that with a, a real example that I've seen of a problem caused, this was a an ERP system implementation, which went wrong at a key supplier, or name the software provider concerned, but um, that unfortunately caused the downtime in this critical supplier's production for around about three to four months, and they were making goods for a particular, well, the Christmas season, this was around actually toy manufacturer. So the results of the company concerned were down by 50% on what the analysts expected. So that was failure around implementation and challenges there. So it's coming from both directions. With all of these risks that you've outlined in the last few minutes, what should companies be doing? What are some good risk management strategies and aspects of contingency planning that businesses can be undertaking right now to minimize the impact of these risks upon their global supply chains? Thanks, Bob, for that question. The first point is to understand where your value is. One of the key things for any business is delivering for your customer on time. Companies often say to me, well, where do we start, Nick? We've got thousands of suppliers. I say, well, the simple place to start is what is your most profitable product or service and which suppliers do you depend upon for that service or provision of the product? And that makes it a more manageable task for a start. It's a journey of improvement, your most profitable product or service. Then understand the suppliers that sit behind that. Where are they located in the world? And what supplies do they depend upon? As far as you can understand it, so going back to our earlier part of the conversation, rare earth metals required in many mobile phones. It's good to know that quite a number of those come from China how you're securing the sources or how your supplier is securing the sources in their particular part of the manufacturing process. And having mapped out at least your critical tier one suppliers, preferably start to look at your tier two suppliers, certainly. But even just getting a critical tier one suppliers mapped out, I was privileged enough to talk to some of our key customers around 2011. And for those who have been proactive and understood where their critical suppliers were in Japan, for example, their ability to answer the question that many companies got at that time around the tsunami, over that unfortunate weekend where they were asked, are we impacted, the CEO or the CFO would ring up their supply chain director. They could answer the question on the Monday morning because they knew where their Japanese suppliers were, what products they supplied, and they were in contact with them over the weekend. Whereas people who weren't so proactive, they were still struggling early in the following week to answer the question, trying to work out exactly which supplies were impacted, where they were. In the meantime, those that were prepared were able to buy up inventory that was out there in the system or make, you know, start on their contingency plan. Of course, they found out in many cases, and also in the case of the Thailand floods, that they could identify their suppliers, but it just turned out that they were all in the same place, essentially, and all affected. So I would think that the next step to mapping your supply chain would be to achieve some level of geographical diversity so as to be less affected by a disaster in any particular part of the world, right? Absolutely, and this takes time. It's too late to do it, unfortunately, in an optimal way once the disaster has struck and you paint a great picture with Thailand, you say, well, you can see there's a general capacity challenge, the industry and industry cluster in a particular geography, then you should be thinking about where do we develop other sources 
because that's going to take some time and you don't want to be doing that when the disasters struck. Building in agility, but also maybe you want to build up, I know it can be almost a naughty word to use, but inventory sometimes has its value in, in a supply chain. A buffer, you know, just sometimes you can be, if I can use the expression, too lean. The cost of your industrial production being closed down for a day or two can be extremely costly. And, and if you let your customer down, winning them back, particularly if your competitor is in a better position than you and actually can replace you can take years. So being aware of what's going on in the world, first of all, figuring out what your supply chain looks like in relation to that, and then taking these important steps in order to mitigate that risk. It's nice to know something that moving in our direction to help us in that, and that technology, as much as we talked earlier, it can be a challenge when it goes wrong. It actually is giving us the capability, and we in Zurich are looking at this actively, whereby you can bring in multiple risk factors and geographies and bring them together and use the various new techniques that are coming along, machine learning and so on, to help us scale up supply chain resilience. That is some great advice. Nick Wild Goose, I want to thank you so much for spending time with us to talk about what's going on in the world and where the risk is. Uh, we will link in our show notes to the episode to both of the studies we've been discussing today as well as to Zurich itself. And I think this will be very helpful to companies to determine how to, not, if not de-risk, at least minimize risk in their, in their global supply chains. Thank you, Nick, for being with us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Bob. That was my conversation with Nick Wildgoose of Zurich Insurance Group, talking about the biggest risk to global supply chains. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.